0: Morning, happy Memorial Day. Tomorrow, specifically tomorrow, this whole weekend obviously, but uh, tomorrow is the day that we have set aside as a country to honor the men and women who have died in battle throughout uh, the, the nation's history for fighting for our freedom, those who have served in the U.S. military and who have given their lives. And this day of honoring fallen soldiers many of you I'm sure know, started after the Civil War. After the Civil War, there were communities that would gather together in the springtime, and they would would decorate graves, they would gather for tributes, they would gather together for prayer in these communities. And here at Grace Fellowship, we believe it is important to honor our veterans. So what I would like to begin our service doing is taking a moment to honor and appreciate, first of all, our veterans who are in the room. Do we have veterans in the room today? Would you stand so that we could honor you, our veterans? Could we honor them with some applause? We appreciate your service to our country. This uh, flag at the front is uh, the flag from uh, my, my dad. Uh, he didn't die in battle. Uh, he He's was drafted during Vietnam and served at Fort Meade in, in Maryland during that time, during his year tour. Uh, but that was the flag that we got at his funeral. And uh, it's important that we take time and say thank you to our veterans. Is there anyone in the room who their experience, their story is that someone in your family, your family, um, I don't know how far out we go with this, but someone in your family who died in battle, serving our country, is there anyone that would say that you have a family member? You have? Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Thank you. Uh, And our love and our sympathies, our appreciation to you and to your family. Thank you. And there may be others on the other side of that camera. And if that is you, if that's your story, if that's your family, and that sacrifice is in your family history, we want to say thank you. Uh, we, We really appreciate it. So God and country, you know this phrase, right? God and country, it's a value that many of us, if not all of us, were taught growing up. It's, uh, it's something that uh, I can remember uh, as a child being taught, the value of God and country. Certainly, that's one of the things that we celebrate on Memorial Day. God and country is a value that I did and still believe in. But I also, as I've grown and matured in my faith as a follower of Jesus, I've also, throughout the years, uh, for quite a while, had a a great concern uh, that there is, at times, confusion between the gospel of Jesus Christ and what I would describe as a civic religion. There's a book called The Unsaved Christian, and in that book, the, the civic religion is defined as one that promotes a God without any definition and a generic faith that demands and asks nothing of its followers. It wasn't all that long ago where my only deep concern over The gospel and and how that has played itself out in in the American culture and in churches themselves. There There was a time not that long ago when I was only concerned about the moral deists that we find in the American church. The American church is full of those who are moral, who are good, who are what I would describe as nothing more than a deist that believes, yes, God exists. And God wants people to be good. God wants people to be nice and, and, and treat each other fairly. But the goal in life is to be happy. The goal of life is to feel good about oneself. And you don't necessarily need God in every area of your life to, to have that kind of happiness. Now, you, you need God when, when uh, you have something wrong that you need God to resolve. You don't necessarily need Him in every aspect of your life. And the moral deist would also believe that everyone who is good goes to heaven. Now, the only part of that that is actually uh, gospel-centered and biblically-based is that God exists. The rest of it is not the gospel. I've long been concerned about people who, uh, even in churches, who admire Jesus... They have no desire to follow Jesus, and those are two very different things. People who claim to be a Christian, they profess to be a Christian, but have no interest in obedience, no interest in submission to the God that they claim they believe in. You might hear people say something like this, you know, I sing God bless America, and I get really choked up, and I I get tears in my eyes. And I believe in the value of God and country. I believe in most of the values that are taught in the Bible. I think Jesus is great and should be admired. Therefore, I must be right with God. That's the conclusion. That's not the gospel. Matthew 7, 21. Listen to this. Matthew 7, 21, not, this is Jesus speaking. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's Laws. There's a passage or a verse in James, James 2:19, where James says, "You believe that there is one God." And he says, "Good," and it's an emphatic "good." That's great that you believe there's one God. And then he makes this statement: "Even the demons believe that and shudder." It's not enough to believe that God exists, or to have uh, this value within us of God and country, and to be able to sing patriotic songs. That's not what makes us right with God. And it's still a concern of mine that that people don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ within the American church. The gospel of Jesus says that we are all sinners, and because we're sinners, we are not right with a holy God. And the only way to be made right with a holy God is to put our faith and trust in Jesus so that He can apply His righteousness to us. To trust in His sacrifice that He made on the cross as a substitute payment to appease the wrath of God against our sin. To believe in the power of the resurrection from the dead. To make us right with God. To give us this gift of grace that results in eternal life an eternal life that we don't deserve, an eternal life that we cannot earn, that Jesus provides for us and gives us through faith. And I think it's still true, as it was in the years that I've been concerned about, it's still true that some have replaced the gospel with some form of civic religion, some form of moral deism that will not save our souls from hell. Still a concern I have. But after the last several years, now I have a new concern. A new concern as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ and our role as Christians in America. There's a Bush League football player named Colin Kaepernick. You know this name? If you're a fan, too bad, I'm not. A few years ago, he started kneeling during the national anthem. You know this story. And that started this trend across the country of people saying that the American flag represents racism. And I remember scratching my head and thinking, that makes no sense to me. Why do you get to assign meaning to the American flag just because you, uh, you are a football player and have money and, and have a plaque? Why do you get to do that? I remember maybe you had some of these questions. I remember wondering as a Christian, you know, you, I don't want to be a racist. I imagine most of you don't want to be racist or or called racist. That's not fun. And I remember thinking, am I allowed to love my country? Then we had the summer of Black Lives Matter riots. And Christians were told, if we don't support BLM, then we must be racist. What? Uh, I don't want to be racist. I don't agree with this this violence. What am I to do with that? Then the pandemic hit, and our government shut everything down. And while Americans became divided over all kinds of things, from shots and masks and everything else, somewhere along the way, churches became places of controversy. If you stay open, you're terrible. If you close down, you're terrible. If you do this for mitigation, you're horrible. If you don't do these things, you Remember, there was this controversy that, that was placed upon churches, and no matter what we did, we were seen as in the wrong Bible teaches, and we'll look at some of these verses, that that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're to submit to governing authorities. But how we apply that principle, uh, it's not as cut and dry as it sounds, because there's lots of examples of Christians, of followers of of Jesus, and and even in the Old Testament of of those who said to government, no, what you're doing conflicts with God, and I'm going to follow God. And so applying that principle is not as cut and dry as it may sound, and trying to figure that out created division, even among Christians. Of course, the 2020 election didn't promote a whole lot of unity in or outside of the church. Remember, all of these things over the last several years, this is what we've been through. And while all that was going on, there was a cultural shift happening underneath our feet. Where Christian principles, Christian values, biblical values, along the way at some point became viewed as hateful bigotry. Football coaches lose their jobs for praying on the fifty-yard line after a game, where teachers and and teachers could lose their jobs and students could be uh, kicked out of school because they refused to participate in the transgender pronoun agenda. This is the world that we now live in, and so on this. Weekend that is set aside to honor those who have fought and died for freedom. We are finding ourselves in this place in history where so many of our values as a country have shifted so far away from God that even the value of God and country is now not something that holds us together. It's no longer looked at with favor, and, and the church is no longer looked at with favor. Over the last few years, I have found myself asking lots of questions, and, and maybe these are questions that you've asked or wondered about, but I, I just have at times wondered, is it, is it still okay for me as a Christian to love my country? And if so, what does that mean? What does it mean to love my country? What does it mean to love other citizens? Because throughout our country's history, there have been patriotic Christians who have done terrible things. That has happened. I don't want to be part of that. How do I guard my heart from from making my country or or a politician or a political ideology, how do I guard my heart from those things becoming an idol in my life? I don't want that. What is my role as a Christian when it comes to things like politics or when it comes to things like cultural debates? Is it okay for me to express my thoughts, my opinions, or am I supposed to shut up and sit in the corner? Is it okay to push back and and, and be vocal about biblical standards of right and wrong? And if so, how do I do that in a way that honors God? Because we've all seen that people who say right things don't always say them the right way, and that doesn't help the gospel at all. Is there a time for a Christian, a follower of Jesus, to participate in what we would call civil disobedience, where we say, no, I'm not doing that. And if so, if there is a time and place for that, how do I do that in a way that honors God? If if a patriot is someone who loves his or her country... Can I be a Christian patriot? And if so, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I do that in a way that brings glory to God? And I'm just going to tell you now, I'm not going to solve all these tension questions in 30 minutes. I hope that's not your expectation, but I'm also not going to spend eight weeks uh, dragging this out. We're going to hit it hard. I've got some notes, some extended notes. I wrote a lot of stuff. And you don't normally get that much uh, written information, but I think this stuff is important. And uh, so we'll we'll walk through this. I believe that there is a biblical framework, a biblical worldview framework that will be helpful to us. I feel like right now we're waiting to see what's going to happen with the pendulum. The pendulum of our culture is getting farther and farther and farther away from God from biblical standards and values, from even even the the civicness of God and country. It's it's swinging so far, and we're kind of waiting to see, is it going to break and this is done, or is it going to come back? Right now, it's kind of right there at that point where I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But as we wait to see what will take place, I believe there are some biblical truths that we can apply in our everyday lives as we follow Jesus, as we do our best to live a Jesus-centered life. Now, we are going to talk about some of these things in a little more detail over the next several weeks as we talk about the seven churches. Because The seven churches in Revelation dealt with a lot of things and corruption and and persecution and all these kinds of things. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. But I do want you to have your Bibles ready because uh, I've got political opinions. I'm sure you have political opinions. That's not what we're here to talk about. That's not my purpose. That's not my goal. When I approach hard questions like this, I want to know what does God's Word have to say about it. I want to know what what does God what, what are the guiding principles that I could pull out of God's Word that will help me navigate and come to some type of conclusion on hard questions that will honor God, that will, that will stay true to the gospel. How, how do we do that? And we think about our role as Christians and our relationship to, to our country, to, uh, to other citizens. I want to know what God's Word has to say about it. So I've broken this down in a couple different answers, and here's the, here's the first one. I believe God's Word teaches that the Christian patriot, the, the follower of Jesus who loves his or her country, will respect those in authority. I believe that is a biblical principle. It's a baseline principle that we see in a number of places. Romans 13 is, is one of the more common ones to look at. Just look at that quickly with me. Romans 13, verse 1, "'Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God.'" So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they'll be punished. "'For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong.'" Now, you may argue with that in our current climate, I understand, but when government is doing what it is supposed to do, this is true, this is accurate. So his argument is, do what is right and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. If you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for uh, they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent uh, for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but to also keep a clear conscience. And then it gets into taxes. Pay your taxes uh, These, for the very same reasons. The government workers need to be paid. They're serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. Give, here's the key, give respect and give honor to those who are in authority. It's a baseline principle for for followers of Jesus Christ, that as citizens, we are to show respect and honor to those in authority. There's another uh, really good passage in 1 Peter that I think is important. 1 Peter 2.13. Look at that one. 1 Peter. 2.13, for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of the state or officials he has appointed, for the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong, to honor those who do right. It goes on here to talk about it's honorable, uh, live your life uh, in an honorable way. But I like verse 17. It says, respect everyone, love the family of believers. So that's talking about respecting everyone as the citizens around us. Obviously, we need to show love and respect to uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then it says, fear God, respect the King. Both things need to happen. Fear God and respect the King. And I would summarize it this way, that that Christians ought to be the best citizens. Sometimes government does not fulfill God's desires. We know that. It's not just our government. Governments uh, throughout history, this would be true of. Even even in Israel's history, how many many wicked kings? I I don't remember what the number is now, but you you add up how many wicked kings Israel had versus how many good kings, and it's a little out of skew, right? So even even in Israel's history, God's chosen people, that government didn't always do what God wanted. But the baseline is that uh, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ who loves his or her country, we need to show respect and honor towards those in authority. There's another thing I think that the Bible teaches about this. The Christian patriot should pray for those in authority. 1 Timothy 2. Look at that. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge you, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to a young pastor named Timothy, he says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf. Give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness. This is good. It pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. We need to pray for those who are in authority. The Christian patriot, I also believe the Bible teaches that we should love other citizens. You ready for this? Even the ones who are far from God. What did Jesus teach us? Jesus said, Love your best friends and all the people that you enjoy being around. Isn't that what it says? Jesus said, Love your enemies pray for those who persecute you well if that's the standard then then we need to be praying for and showing kindness and love and respect even to those that disagree with us and that see biblical values that you and i want to live under as evil because that's how it's viewed now in 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 many places in our culture that we're the problem that we are hateful bigots that's how we're viewed by many in our country. Even in those cases, we show kindness and love and respect to other citizens. There's another one. I believe the Bible teaches the Christian patriot will obey God and speak truth even to those who are in authority. I'll give you a few examples of where I would pull this out from Scripture. One would be when the apostles in Acts chapter five, the apostles get arrested because they were told to stop teaching people about Jesus. And their response to that instruction from those in authority their, their response was this: it's Acts five twenty nine. They say they said we must obey God rather than men. That was their response, and they continue to do that and and uh, continue to get arrested and put in jail the whole bit. They were accused of breaking the law and being troublemakers. But in all of that, when you read through what they experienced, because they said, we have to, we have to keep preaching Jesus. That's what, what Jesus commanded us to do. When they would get arrested, they did not resist arrest. They didn't act like violent lunatics. They accepted the consequences of that. They didn't change their convictions. They did not change their message. They obeyed God, and they trusted God to help them handle whatever consequences would come from disobeying those in authority. They stood their ground. They spoke truth boldly without fear, but they did so with respect. The Apostle Paul, in a couple places throughout the book of Acts, like Acts 16, this was really interesting to me, watching how Paul leveraged his roman citizenship paul and silas were arrested in philippi and when they were arrested they were flogged they were whipped and then put in jail without a trial and according to the 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 roman law as a citizen that's not okay The magistrates who who were in charge of all of this, they said the next day that they could be released. And it's so fascinating to me that Paul says this, Right, The, 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 the jail authority, so you can go. And Paul says, hold up. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. And then they threw us in prison and now they want to get rid of us quietly. He said, no, they can come down here and they can let us out and escort us out of the jail personally. Isn't that interesting? Now, his response to them got them scared because they knew they were in violation of the law, of their rights as a Roman citizen. Isn't it interesting that Paul leveraged the law as authority over those who are in authority? Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel in Acts 21. And again, he leveraged his Roman citizenship to make sure that those who were in charge of his custody, those who were in charge of his trial, did things according to the law, not according to public opinion. That's why he said, I appeal to Caesar in that whole uh, trial story. He had the right to do so as a citizen, and he leveraged that. Here's here's the point I'm trying to make. Paul was not afraid to appeal to the law as having authority over those who are in authority. He pushed back on those in authority who wanted to ignore the law. You see this in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends, they dealt with mandates. They dealt with bad policies. And there's a, couple, there's a couple examples of that that are pretty easy. Like whenever Nebuchadnezzar had a big statue built of himself and he demanded everyone bow down and worship it, what should you do? Well, that one, I'm not saying it's easy to face a fiery furnace as a consequence, but you know what the right thing to do is. It's not like you're wondering, should I, should I worship the idol or not? You know the right answer is no. I'm not going to worship this idol. I'm only going to worship God. Would it require courage to face death? Yeah, absolutely. But you don't wonder what's the right thing to do here. Some harder ones were: What about when they were told to eat the royal food? They were in the the state-run uh, school, and they were told to eat this uh, this this royal food. Daniel asked for permission to eat a better diet. And yes, uh, the reason for that that he knew was so he wouldn't defile himself. But he also gave to the man in authority over him, he gave a reasonable explanation as to a benefit to him and his friends from eating better food. He pushed back with respect. He pushed back with a reasonable argument. We have to remember that not everyone believes that the Bible is authoritative. I do. I know most of you in the room believe that the Bible is true and authoritative over our lives. Not everyone in our culture believes that. And so we, we go to the Word of God to understand things like, what is God's design for marriage? What does God say about gender? And so we get our information. We come to conclusions as Christians from the Word of God. But not everyone is going to look at the Word of God as authoritative. So in those cases, what do we do? We make reasonable arguments. Here's how we can do this. God's standards are not given to us just to ruin our lives and squash all of our fun. God knows that sin destroys. God knows that sin makes a mess. And so God has given us rules and standards and principles for our good. And those things that are good, those things that are a benefit to us, are a benefit to everyone who who follows them. And so, let's let's take the the point of sexualizing five and six-year-olds in the classroom. Now, we know that that's wrong because of the Word of God. But I think we could make a reasonable argument, even to someone who doesn't believe in God, that that's a bad idea. Or letting hormonal boys run around the locker room, the girls' locker room. Yes, my belief in God's Word informs me that that's not a good idea, but I think I can make a reasonable argument as to why that's not a good idea. Watching, I don't even know what what the guy's name is, the guy who competed against all these girls in swimming, and like destroyed them? Could we not make a reasonable argument that that's a bad idea? Yeah, we, you and I can root that in the Word of God, but I think we can root it in, in just observation of natural science. There's a lots of examples you know, like that, that we can use reasonable arguments that there are certain things that are harmful, there are certain things that are wrong. It's not easy. That's going to require a little bit of effort, a little bit of uh, reading on our part and 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 making sure that we can make a cohesive, reasonable argument when we have conversations about it. Here's another one. This one's harder. How about when Daniel, uh, when the law came through and Daniel was uh, said, he was told, you can't pray anymore to God. You can only pray to the king. Remember this? Well, Daniel had a a daily habit. He would go to his apartment, go to his house. In this upper window of his house, he would open the window, and he would pray, and everyone could see that he would pray. And then the law says you can't do it anymore. How easy would it have been for Daniel to say, "Eh, I'm going to keep praying, but I'm going to do it with the window closed. I'm going to do it in the inside of my home so no one could see. That would have been an easy thing to do. That's not what Daniel did. He could have kept it secret, but he didn't. He was taking a stand and saying, no, I'm I'm not ashamed of my faith in God and I'm going to continue to honor God even though this law has put me in conflict with the king. Real life, fast forward to our present day. I, I, I I see this playing out in the life of Joseph Kennedy, high school football coach, fired from his job for praying on the 50-yard line after football games. I listened to his story. I listened to a podcast and listened to him tell his own story about what happened, and it was fascinating because you know, you, get, you get certain information from the news or whatever. I listened to his story, and, and this whole thing, it was, it was never intended to be anything political. He just felt that God was, was laying on his heart that after games that God wanted him to go out and, and kneel, it was like a 20-second prayer on the 50-yard line. He did it by himself for a while, just him on the 50-yard line praying a quiet prayer by himself. Then after a, a, a while, there were a few players that came and said, coach, would it be okay if we prayed with, with you? Free country. If you guys want to do that's fine. Well, that began to grow, and then it got to the point where I guess some of the players knew some of the other players on the other team. And after one of these games, there were some players from the other team that wanted to join in. Is it okay if we pray? Free country. Go ahead, let's pray. This whole thing started because the opposing coach of the other team, now listen, it's not going where you think it is if you don't know the story, the opposing coach of the other team was so impressed by what he saw that he called into the administration or the principal's office or something, he called someone to say to the athletic director, hey, I just want you to know how impressed I am with your students how impressed I am with your program and your coach and explain what happened. He's just impressed by, you know, you got players from different teams praying together. How amazing, right? This coach was impressed and complimented these players and the coach. And that is where things went sideways when this coach's administration went sideways on him. And they told him, that he could, he did not have the right to pray in front of other people. You want to pray? You can go into the locker room where no one can see you. That's what he said. And he said, no, I'm not doing that. It's now in front, well, it's already been uh, argued in front of the Supreme Court. We'll, we'll find out. Uh, it's a pretty important religious liberty case in front of the Supreme Court, and uh, we'll find out the results of that probably in the next several weeks about what happened there, uh, at stake really is the question, are we allowed to pray in public? Are we allowed to pray in front of other people? Are we allowed to practice our faith in public? That's really what's at stake. Now imagine this man, this Christian, unwilling to take a stand. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I just want to get along. And and that's fine. I'll I'll not pray or I'll pray in the locker room where no one can see me. Do that. My point is this. It's not always easy, but there are times when the Christian patriot needs to obey God's word, needs to speak truth, even if that means facing hard consequences. And for me, I think that is where love for God and love for our country I think this is where it becomes more than a bumper sticker. I think this is where it becomes more than a slogan on Memorial Day. I think this is what it means to live that out. When you ask me the question, can I be a good Christian who loves Jesus and a patriot who loves his country, my answer to that question is yes. Now, I'll recognize with you, does America have flaws? We've got plenty of flaws. I was recently called to to jury duty. now here's my my butt to that, right? We have many flaws, but I've never been called for jury duty. This is my first time ever being called and uh, so I was kind of excited about the experience and and I was in the courtroom and uh, 40 people in or whatever it was, and we were listening to the judge's explanation and instructions about why we were there and what we were to do and all this, and she did a masterful job just explaining this, this core principle, and, and she said, is the justice system in America perfect? No, but it, her words, it is the best in the world, And her point was this, her point was that according to our Constitution, we don't always get it right, let's recognize, we don't always get it right, but when we do, it's the best in the world because our Constitution is based on the presumption of innocence. Everyone is afforded a lawyer, There there is supposed to be, and when we get it right, there is, there is equal justice under the law. Sometimes humans mess it up, but that's how it's written. That's how it's designed. That's in America. You think about the freedom that we have. Do we have flaws? Yes. But we have the freedom to work. We have the freedom to pick your own career. You can have as many children as you want or not. You can choose to be a person of faith like we are or Not. You can choose to speak out against the things that are not right and the things that are not good. We do have the right to pray in public, to gather for worship, to invite people to come to church. We can spend money however we want. There is equal opportunity. Listen, it is not remarkable... It is not remarkable that America had slavery at the beginning when we started this country. It's not remarkable. Everyone had slavery in the world. What is remarkable is that we stopped it. What is remarkable is that we fought a war to say, no, this is not okay. That's what's remarkable about our story. C.S. Lewis said that love for your country is like, quote, having love for your family. You may not always approve of everything people in your family do. Now, your family's perfect, I know. Your family's not messed up, but there are some messed up families. You may not always approve of everything people in your family do, but you love them. You weep for them when they make a mess of their lives, and you pray that their heart would turn to God. Is that not true? I told you I wrote an expanded version of your notes this morning. A book there, like a mini book I gave you. But the intent of that was to give you some practical ways, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, to to love our country, to love our citizens in a God-honoring way. But if you'll permit me, I'll just share a few of them before we close. They're not the ones that are in there. I put all the ones that I couldn't fit into this because I figured you didn't want to be here till like Tuesday. Here's a couple. Be committed to Jesus. Be committed to Jesus. Do Listen, do not put your trust in a political leader. Do not put your trust in a political party to be your Messiah. Don't do it. We have one Messiah. We have one king. His name is Jesus. That's it. There's only one who can rescue us from sin. Only Jesus deserves to be our king. Be committed to Jesus first. The second thing I would say is this, be committed to the mission of Jesus. Because love for God and love for others, love for other American citizens means that we are going to take our mission to share the truth of Jesus, the message of the gospel. We're going to take that responsibility seriously. The the flaws and the problems in our country, which we all can point to, they are ultimately a heart issue. And the only one who can fix our spiritual heart issues is Jesus. So be committed to the mission of Jesus. If you love this country, if you love the citizens Share Jesus with them. The next thing I would say is be committed to the truth. Do not be afraid to speak truth. Do not be afraid or feel ashamed of standing on the truth. But as followers of Jesus, we need to make sure that we speak truth in what? In love. Not always easy. I understand that. But that's the commitment we have to make. To speak truth with love and respect. When it comes time to speak up, when that time comes, don't yell, don't demean, don't degrade, don't disrespect. But there are going to come times when we have to speak up and stand for truth. Here's why. If Christians don't push back against bad ideas that we know are rooted in sin. Maybe, maybe people outside the church don't see that it's rooted in sin, but we know it's a bad idea. If we don't speak out and push back against those kinds of bad ideas, who's going to do it? If those who are anchored to God's moral standards are unwilling to give voice to the benefits of those standards and warn against the damage caused by ignoring those standards... If we're unwilling to do it, who will? In a culture where sex is treated as casually as going to DQ for a blizzard, should the Christian not offer reasons why God's standards for sex is better than that? In a culture where the argument in support of abortion has shifted from safe and rare to abortion on demand up to and now including beyond birth, that's where the argument's at now, should the Christian not clearly speak out to protect unborn life, to offer logical arguments about things like ultrasounds and the inconsistencies that we hear in the pro-abortion line of thinking? If we're not willing to do that, who will? Be committed to the truth. Be committed to your family. Here's what I mean by that. You've heard the term America first. It's popular throughout the, the country. And there's people who believe that, uh, believe that political view is, is good. There are those who believe that political view is not good. It doesn't matter to me if you agree with it or disagree with it. I believe that family first is a biblical value, that it is a biblical principle. And I believe that because we are commanded by God to teach our children God's standards of right and wrong. Mom and dad, grandparents, that's your job. You need to take it seriously. I need to take it seriously. We are responsible for knowing God's word and teaching it to the next generation. Teaching it to our children and our grandchildren, living it, applying God's principles to our everyday lives and our daily choices. If we don't do it, we are going to lose our children to the world. I promise you, do your job. Can I say it that forcefully? Do your job. If if we don't have an anchor point, if we don't have firm principles, not only are we not going to know when and where we should push back, we're going to lose our kids to this culture. Family first. Be committed to your family first. Be committed to prayer. Prayer for wisdom and discernment of what, what does God want me to push back on and what do I need to keep quiet about? And if I am called by God to speak out and push back, how do I do that? Lord, how do you want me to do that in a way that honors you? Be committed to prayer. Two more. Be committed to biblical values in your voting. Oh, you're getting political. Walk with me for a minute, all right? I'm not talking about... Telling you who to vote for. Here's what I'm saying. I have I have three kids, and I have I started these conversations with them uh, when they were much much younger than they are now. I'm like 10, 11, something like that. My conversations with them, even before they got to the age where dating was even on their radar, the conversation was this: someday you're going to be interested in dating. Someday you're going to be interested in a boy or a girl, and you need to you need to think now about what it is you're gonna put on a list of what you're looking for. What do you think you're looking for? right, we just have this back and forth and we would go through, oh, they should be cute. Yeah, they should be cute. They should be smart. Yeah, they should be smart. And so we go, and all of those things are legit, right? Not a good idea to marry someone you're not attracted to. Just say that's not a good idea. So all those things are legit. But the point of that conversation was, number one, at the top of that list, does this person love Jesus? If they don't make it past, number one, there's no reason to look at numbers two through ten. Number one's the deal breaker. If they don't love Jesus, it doesn't matter how cute they are. It doesn't matter how funny they are. And I approach... Voting the same way. So my advice is this. What are your biblical principles? For me, pro-life is at the top of the list. It is number one. If, if the candidate does not pass that, I'm not interested in the other 10 things that interest me. And, and maybe there are other things that for you, you've got three of these things that are biblically-based values and principles that you say, if this candidate does not check these three boxes for me, I'm not interested. There's probably a lot of other things that that may interest you in a candidate, but there should be biblical values that come first that are deal-breakers for the Christian. One more. Be committed to being the best citizen of both heaven and earth that you can possibly be. Live a Jesus-centered life. Lead by example. Be light in your community. Charles Colson wrote a book called God and Government, and he writes this, The first responsibility for the citizen of heaven is to understand historic Christian truth, to know Scripture and solid doctrines of the faith. If we know God's standards for living, we will be good citizens of both heaven and earth. If we love others and promote justice and protect the innocent, we make our communities better. Live biblical principles, live biblical values in a way that other people can see the benefits to following Jesus, that they can see the joy in your life. Don't be afraid to live a Jesus-centered life. Love God and love others. Speak truth in love and with respect. God and country. I still believe in that value. But I want to live out that value from a gospel-centered perspective. I want to be a Christian and a patriot who loves God enough to surrender my life to Him, who loves His country enough to share the gospel with my fellow citizens and to live a Jesus-centered life that my fellow citizens and your fellow citizens can see makes a difference in my life. I believe that's our call as the Christian Patriot.